this idea that government is beholden to the people, that it has no other source of power except the sovereign people, is still the newest and the most unique idea in all the long history of man's relation to man. I think that we have a core set of values that are enshrined in our Constitution, in our body of law, that are exceptional. What our framers debated that, that, that whole summer in Philadelphia in 1787. Our Constitution begins with the word, we the people of the United States. That is what it means to say that we have a government of laws and not of men. Welcome back to Constitutional Conventions, the official podcast of the Yale Law School Federalist Society. My name is Jonathan Feldman. I'll be your host, and I'm joined by my co-host, the president of the Yale Federalist Society, Robert Capitolupo. We have a great guest that we're really excited to talk to. Uh, professor Vincent Philip Munoz is the Tocqueville Associate Professor of Political Science and Concurrent Associate Professor of Law at the University of Notre Dame. He is the founding director of Notre Dame's Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government where he's done a really great job at the university, uh, building out an entirely new center for, for academic inquiry. Uh, he, he's a tremendous scholar. It's, his scholarship's been cited numerous times uh, in church, state, Supreme Court opinions, uh, recently by Justice Alito in the Fulton case, and by both Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Thomas in Espinoza v. Montana in 2020. You're, you're building up the citation count. I think some law scholars are probably a little bit jealous, but uh, I, I think it's well-deserved. You've been published in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy and the American Political Science Review. Uh, your most recent book, Religious Liberty and the American Founding, received a National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowship. And I can say, as a taxpayer, it was worth every penny. Uh, it's an awesome book. Uh, you should go out and buy it if you, if you don't have it already, because it's a great read, especially for those interested in religious liberty. We're, we're really happy to have you. Thanks for joining the show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for thanks for having me, Professor. I, I think you're you're the second in our, our running series of uh, non JD holders to join the show, and it's really awesome. We had David Blight, a historian from Yale, uh, and a great conversation. And we, we we talked a lot about what people's paths have been towards an interest in the law, constitutional issues, legal issues. I think this has been a running thread. Uh, in your entire academic career, going all the way back to your time at a Claremont Graduate University, I don't know if it was Claremont Graduate School back then, but you know, it's, it's it's been a running thread for a very long time. So, could you talk through about you know your interest in political science and its intersection with constitutional law and constitutional theory? Yeah, sure. You know, well, there's a bit of a funny story. My college roommate um, went to law went to law school, went to Yale Law School, actually, um, Father Dominic Legg. So I I was interested in theory um, and political philosophy. I wrote my undergraduate uh, college thesis on Thomas Aquinas and the idea of the natural law. And my roommate, uh, now Father Legg, wrote his undergraduate thesis on James Madison and property. So he wanted to be the lawyer and I wanted to be the um, political theorist. I suppose I, I still am a political theorist, but then I got really interested in law as I did political theory. So, you know, I teach at Notre Dame Law School as well as our political science department. And he went to law school, became a lawyer, and now he's a Catholic priest doing, you know, high theology. So we had we had a bit of a switch. I mean, life uh, life turned out um, unexpectedly in some ways. And now he's the great Aquinas scholar, and I do, as you know, my work on James Madison. So um, it was a roundabout roundabout process for me. I I was interested in the idea of natural rights, and as you see in the book, um, my interest in natural rights. Uh, became an interest on how do we protect these natural rights? Well, we protect them through the Constitution, and then that means the Supreme Court who interprets the Constitution. So my the philosophical interests, uh, as they became practical, became legal interests. So I suppose that's how I uh, ended up on the podcast with you. Hearing you talk, it, it's almost like the perfect Notre Dame professor, right? The, the marriage of kind of legal philosophy and constitutional law. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about the Center for Citizenship and Constitutional uh, Government? Sure, yeah. Well, the center started in um, 2021, and our first big event was actually a, a Yale Law grad. We, ha- we hosted Clarence Thomas for several days, and he taught an undergraduate class with me on church-state jurisprudence, and then he gave a big lecture for us on the Declaration of Independence. So we, we do things like that. We don't do that all, all the time, but we host speakers, we foster scholarship, uh, we have an undergraduate minor in constitutional studies. Uh, This might be of interest to any undergraduates who want to go to uh, law school. We are starting a new program, a JD PhD. So if you're interested in law and interested in getting a PhD, you know, it's super selective, very hard to get into. But the idea here is actually we'll pay you and you'll get both degrees in in six years. So that's an initiative I've raised money for and 
we're, we're launching right now. So we do all the things that you do at a university, scholarship teaching. Uh, and uh, we well, well, all the things you're supposed to do at a university. Huh? <laughs> I don't know these days. Um, let's let, let's dive into the book a little bit. Uh, you just released this new book in 2022, Religious Liberty and the American Founding, Natural Rights, and the Original Meanings of the First Amendment Religion Clauses. It's an awesome book. Rob and I have read it. It's dog-eared and, and, and notes in the columns all over the place. Uh, I think really useful uh, for, for scholars and lawyers alike. You know, the, the first parts of the book really go meticulously through founding debates, founding era debates, ratification era debates about the nature of the U.S. government and the U.S. American society's relationship to religion, uh, established or otherwise. For those who haven't had a chance to read the book, how would you describe the project and and, and your overall thesis for, for interest? Yeah, good. Well, I mean, you know, thanks again, actually, for the kind words and just uh, for reading the book, which I very much appreciate. Um Maybe I can introduce it this way, uh, and this is sort of what I do when I'm teaching my classes at Notre Dame Law School. I'm trying to understand the original philosophy that animated the Constitution. Lawyers and law students talk a lot about the original meaning of the Constitution. Obviously, I'm very interested in that. Um, my argument in the book is that to understand actually the meaning of the First Amendment, we need to uh, understand the original philosophy that animated the Constitution. And that's going to lead us beyond the text to the founder's ideas. And so in the first part of the book, I just try to explain in as straightforward a manner as I can the, the natural rights philosophy that the founders clearly adopted. I, I guess the very first thing I do is just start, try to document that this was the founder's philosophy, philosophy of natural rights. It's relatively easy to show. You see it in the state, state documents at the time, the, the state constitutions and the state founding or declarations of rights, Declaration of Independence, other great statements as well. But and then I try to explain what this natural rights philosophy, uh, how it translates into uh, constitutional government and limited government. And then I try to explore the, what it means to have an inalienable natural right. Because when we try to understand First Amendment questions about religious liberty, the founders talked about religious liberty as an inalienable natural right. So one of the questions the book tries to answer is, what's an inalienable right and what's an inalienable natural right of religious liberty? And I think at least that's the path I take to try to explain what the First Amendment means, at least what it means in light of the founders' philosophy. I thought that it was very refreshing to see the natural rights framework being used within the overall originalist methodology. Um, that, I think, was something that Randy Barnett used to frame his libertarian um, originalist model, but it seems like over time, especially over the past 10 years, originalist methodology has become much more empirical, where scholars are using databases and corpus linguistics and all of these um, quasi or perhaps pseudo-scientific modes to try to figure out what the original public meaning is. And when you hear natural rights talk being applied to constitutional theory now, it seems it's like it's coming more from the common good constitutionalist side, um, which takes issue with originalism. And I know that I think it's the end of the introduction of your book. Uh, you uh, bravely draw a line in the sand against the post-liberal project, um, which I which I find uh, very commendable. So I guess my question is, how do you think? natural rights can exist within the overall uh, structure of originalism? And how do we adjudicate these differing conceptions of the founding natural rights motivation? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a big question and a really uh, interesting one and a good one. Um, let me just say a word about the post-liberals. You know, most of these guys are my friends, or at least I, I think I'm their friends. I don't know if I'm still their friend, but... Uh, doesn't mean they're right. <laughs> and uh, and my main criticism of the post-liberals, at least in the context we're talking about, is that they don't actually understand the founding. Um, none of them are really scholars of the founding. And so um, whatever their critiques of modern progressivism or autonomy liberalism, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat sympathetic to some of those critiques, they don't actually understand our own constitutional tradition. So that's my main critique of them. And so I, you could say part of the project of this book is just to reintroduce the founder's philosophy 
um, to, to the reading public and to academics. Um, there's a lot of criticism of the Constitution without really understanding the Constitution. So you could say that's a broader project I'm working on. Um, not to say the Constitution is perfect, but the things they're criticizing aren't the actual thing that it is. Okay, your broader question was on uh, natural rights and uh, constitutionalism in general and constitutional interpretation, I think, and corpus linguistics and these new methods that originalists are adopting. I, I think corpus linguistics is fine and using dictionaries and textualism is great. Um, I, I'm less uh, sanguine that, uh, that corpus linguistics is going to resolve as many issues as the practitioners think it will. I mean, you should use whatever information you can get, so I'm not against it. I just don't think it actually is that helpful. Um, some words in the Constitution are simply underdetermined. That's part of my argument. And I have a story of why underdetermined words can get into the Constitution. And there's actually another but related question. Um, are the words in the text of the Constitution, do they convey a rule, do they convey a standard, or do they convey a principle? And reading dictionaries or doing corpus linguistics, that's not going to answer those questions. So actually, to do textualism well, my argument is you you, you got to go beyond the text, at least in some instances, right? And And, you know, the... The areas of law we're talking about, the free exercise clause, the establishment clause, if these texts were clear in their meaning, there wouldn't, we, we wouldn't be talking, right? There wouldn't be more work to be done. The, the Supreme Court wouldn't have divided on these things for you know, three or four generations now. Originalists wouldn't have been arguing about these things for so long. The text simply isn't clear. If the text isn't clear, where do we go? You have to go somewhere. And ironically, we haven't gone to the most obvious place, which is the founder's natural rights philosophy. I think you've pointed out something really interesting. Somebody told me in my first semester of law school, of course, all Supreme Court cases are going to be tough decisions because by nature, I mean, most of them are um, contested issues all the way up to the court system. And, and you've got kind of reversals or, or, or opinions being affirmed. And, and, and the issues are narrow. They're narrow and they're close. Otherwise, they wouldn't get cert. You, would, you wouldn't get justices saying this is, this is worth hearing these people out, even if the decision ends up being unanimous. Um, there's going to be some interesting legal question there. And in line with that under determination, you make a really good point, I think, which is, which is on the one hand, a project like this must be daunting because so much has been written about the religion clauses. But on the other hand, uh, as you point out, I think a lot of the aspects of the doctrine are a little, you would say, probably underdetermined or under-theorized. It seems to me, and I think you dispatch with this pretty early in, in the, the book, uh, a lot of the kind of common understandings today of the religion clauses go back to uh, Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptist congregation. Uh, it's, it's just the wall of separation, and that's cited what, Rob? That's the 18, 1870s or so in Reynolds v. U.S. Uh, Reynolds and, v. U.S., yeah, 1878, I think, the very first citation of the letter, yeah. Exactly. And yeah. and ever since, that's been at least one kind of strain that has just been animated throughout. And that's an important strain. But I think you've you've done a really great job here of elucidating a, a broader constellation of thought and, and situating what our current sentiments about the religion clauses are. So, so there's, you know, kind of bravo to that. Uh, but the thing sure. that interested me the most is – in the last section of the book, you begin to develop your own methodology for constitutional construction, which I think is what you were you were just alluding to. Uh, and I think you call it text and design construction or, or something along those lines. Maybe talk through how, how you think through that, how you think through uh, what the difference between interpretation and construction is too. I, I think that's important. Yeah, sure. I mean, so this is one of the more novel arguments of the book, you know, for good or bad. Um, so... I, I try to go through, you know, as meticulously as possible and as fair as possible, the drafting of both the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. And, uh, I mean, these chapters, um, as you said before we start recording, you guys read these chapters. Uh, let's just be honest, these chapters are painful to read. They're very detailed. They're very slow. It's only, you know, only someone uh, who's a practitioner or, you know, really interested in the uh, actual drafting of the text would find them of interest. They're super interesting once you get into them. I mean, uh, you know, um, so I try to go through it very carefully. What can we know about the original meaning through the drafting? The drafting records, especially of the establishment clause, is probably the best evidence we have. 
And the end result of my research, at least, is that it was clear that the founders did not want the national government to establish a religion. They all agreed about that. Um, it was clear that they didn't want to interfere with state church state, state level church state relations. And it was also clear that they had no interest in defining with precision what an establishment of religion is. They were all against it, and they didn't think they needed to define it at the time. And there's a larger story, historical story, about you know the, how the Bill of Rights come about, and Anti-Federalists wanting a second constitutional convention, and James Madison saying, hey, let's just draft text. Federalists dominate the first Congress. We, if we draft text, they won't get their second constitutional convention. So there's a reason why they could draft underdetermined text. At least my, my conclusion a fair reading of the historical record is the text is underdetermined. Similar story with the free exercise clause. So if the text is underdetermined, where does a judge go to interpret the text? How, how do you interpret underdetermined text? If you're an originalist and there's you're, you're looking for the original public meaning, but the original public meaning is underdetermined. You say, if you're a living constitutionalist, so what? You just say, well, this is what it should have been. This is what the founder should have said, or this is what justice requires, or this is what John Rawls' philosophy dictates, or whatever you import meaning, and you're comfortable with that. But originalists aren't supposed to import meaning into the Constitution. You're supposed to find meaning. So where do you find meaning if the meaning, the original meaning isn't clear? You've got to go beyond the text. So the question is, how do you construct the text consistent with its original meaning, or its original purpose or design? And that's what text and design tries to do. Just a clarification. Um, I follow Keith Whittington on the distinction between text uh, interpretation and construction. And, and simply to say that construction begins where interpretation runs out. You can't figure out what the original meaning is. You have to do, um, there's an act of creativity, not in the sense that you're making things up, but that the text doesn't yield, the historical invest investigation doesn't yield an answer. And then you're, uh, so you're you're developing meaning, and then you're applying that meaning to a, a concrete situation. Some scholars, original scholars, say, look, if the text isn't clear, then it should just be unenforceable or non, you know, it, it should just defer to the democratic branches. So we don't know what an establishment is. We defer to Congress's construction of the establishment clause. Uh, there, there's something to be said for that. I mean, I, that itself is a construction. It's not mandated by the Constitution. I'm somewhat skeptical of that approach. But I say, e even if judges are going to be deferential, if you're a legislator or a president, you take an oath to uphold the Constitution. Somebody has to construct the text, even if it's not judges. So somebody is going to find meaning or construct meaning. How should we go about doing it in an originalist manner? And that's where my method, which I call text and design, starts with the text tries to understand the text as well as we can. If the text is underdetermined, we try to understand if it is, is the text a principle, a standard, or a rule. If it's a principle, we try to understand the founder's principle. For the free exercise clause, that leads us to natural rights philosophy. I mean, that's what, how the founders talked about the right of religious liberty. It's an inalienable natural right. So we have this text in the First Amendment, the free exercise of religion. It's underdetermined. What's the founder's philosophy of religious freedom? And that's how you go from constitutional text. I mean, I start with the text, from constitutional text to constitutional philosophy. So I think we should move to substance now with respect to your argument and how these constructions would actually apply to cases and how they differ from what the current doctrine is. I think it's interesting uh, in the in the intro, John mentioned that Justice Alito um, cited your work in his Fulton concurrence, and it seems to me like your construction of the free exercise clause, um, especially with respect to its uh, narrow protection of exemptions, um, is very much in contrast with what um, Justice Alito's proposed rule is. Um, so could you just outline uh, what you think the original construction of the free exercise clause is and uh, how that differs from the Smith test, uh, which is the current law of the land? Yeah, yeah, good. So yeah, I mean, so you started off, as many people do, with the citations by the Supreme Court. Um, I mean, this is a true story, somewhat humorous story, mostly at my expense. Um, when the Fulton opinion came down, 
several citations to my work by Justice Alito. And so my friends from law school were texting me. Dean of law school sent me a nice note. And, you know, congratulations for being cited by Justice Alito. And I'm like, you guys should really read the opinion. Like, he, he cites me. Yeah, he, he cites me multiple times, all to criticize me. You know, it's just not, I mean, maybe a citation is a citation, but this is not exactly what you dream of, that you're singled out by a Supreme Court justice for criticism. Um, a, a very funny story, too. Uh, just a few weeks after that, you know, uh, that opinion came down, I think, in late June uh, 2021. And a few weeks after that, he was here at Notre Dame, and I, I was hosting a lunch with him. Um, and so he walked in the room, and we just look at each other, and I smile, and he smiles, and I know what he's thinking, and he knows what I'm thinking, but we didn't. No one said something. Uh, and then a student who had no clue asked, so um, uh, what is the original meaning of the free exercise clause? <laughs> and and I, he, I look at him, and he looks at me, and we just sort of laugh. So, okay, so what does Alito get wrong? Let me just let me go on the offensive. Um, Justice Alito, Justice Thomas, and Justice Gorsuch argued in Fulton that the original meaning of the free exercise clause or the textual meaning of the free exercise clause clearly gives religious individuals a, a presumptive right to exemptions from otherwise valid laws that burden the religious believers' uh, religious exercises. Um, two easy examples to clarify that. I think your audience probably already knows this, but uh, the Quakers who are pacifists. And I, I pull this up example because this was the leading example from the founding era. Do Quakers, if they get drafted, have to fight? Or do they get a conscientious exemption from military service? A uh, more recent example, a famous case, uh, Yoder versus Wisconsin, 1971 or 70 case. Um, the state of Wisconsin had a mandatory school attendance laws. Uh, you, you had to go to a public school or a private school. You had to go to school. There was no homeschooling provision. And the Amish, or some Amish, uh, would tended to withdraw their kids from school after the eighth grade, so ages 13 and 14. But by law, you had to send your kid to school until the age of 16. So the Amish parents were being fined every day their kids were not in school. So the Amish parents filed a lawsuit claiming their religious beliefs are protected by the First Amendment, and therefore the First Amendment, the Free Exercise Clause, gives them a right to an exemption from the mandatory school attendance law. The Amish won in Wisconsin v. Yoder. The First Amendment Free Exercise Clause was understood to grant exemptions from 1963 to about 1990. In 1990, Justice Scalia, in an opinion called Smith, Oregon v. Smith, overturned, for the most part, the exemption interpretation. And then the exemption interpretation has been reinserted in different contexts, starting in 19, under federal statute, but also in some Supreme Court uh, cases. So free exercise clause jurisprudence is a bit of a mess. Um, you get an exemption depending on whether the law is generally applicable or not. Okay. I don't want to go too much in the deep. My basic position, Alito's position is the free exercise clause provides exemptions, a right to an exemption. I say it doesn't. Now it takes me you know, 300 pages to explain why it doesn't. Let me explain it in a nutshell. Um, the founder said the right to religious liberty is an inalienable natural right. Inalienable rights pertain to the sphere of our freedom, which we do not turn over to the government. We turn over authority to the government to regulate all sorts of our natural freedoms. Um, but some things we don't turn over to the government. An example, uh, government can license all sorts of professions. You guys are going to need to pass the bar and get a law license. Um, I got my hair cut recently. I went to a, a barber who has a cosmetology license, right? To do almost anything in America professionally, you have to have a license. But the government can't issue preaching licenses, right? Government has no authority to issue a preaching license because we don't give government authority to do everything, right? So we withhold. The exemption approach says that Within the authority we give to government, religious believers get an exemption. But that on its face is contrary to the inalienable natural rights understanding of religious free exercise. To say that a natural right is inalienable means we don't give government authority over whatever is in that right, it's outside the sphere of government. So think of um, non-overlapping circles. Whatever is in the inalienable 
right of religious free exercise is in one circle. Government's authority is in another circle. Exemptions operate within government's authority circle. It can't be the enable natural right understanding gives you an exemption within um, the sphere of government authority. They're non-overlapping categories. I don't know if that visual, it'd be, if I could just draw two circles, just imagine two circles in your mind that don't overlap. When the founders talked about the idea of an inalienable natural rights, what, what they were doing was constraining the authority of government. They weren't talking about freedoms within the authority of government, if that makes sense. So it's a category mistake that Alito is making. He misunderstands what it means to possess a natural right. When it, I'm sorry, what it means to possess an inalienable natural right. To have an inalienable natural right is a limitation on government power. And that's why the text of the First Amendment starts with Congress. Congress shall make no law. There's certain things Congress can never legislate on. Make no law prohibiting, not make laws and then make exceptions when they burden. So Congress can and has made laws with respect to civil rights protections in employment. And I think you do note in part three that you think that a generally applicable civil rights law saying that uh, the implication of that being that the Catholic Church couldn't discriminate on the basis of sex and its priests or on the basis of sexual orientation, would would that be permissible under your standard? So if you had a general employment regulation saying no discrimination on the basis of sex, and if uh, the hiring of Catholic priests fell under that employment regulation. Uh, There would be, in my understanding, no First Amendment right for the Catholic Church to be exempt from that law. Now, in drafting that legislation, you could not apply it to uh, all types of employment. Uh, You could not have such legislation in the first place. Um, Let me back up. Because legislation has uncomfortable or oppressive effects on religion, doesn't make it unconstitutional. The purpose of the free exercise clause is not to make it easy for religious believers to um, uh, necessarily live in America. It's not the purpose is not to relieve all burdens that religious believers might feel by the law. The purpose of the First Amendment is to tell the government there are certain types of laws you can't pass. You can't make people go to church. You can't say this is the right religion and you must must practice it on Sundays in this way, else we're going to fine you, right? The, The purpose of the First Amendment free exercise clause is relatively narrow, fundamentally important, but narrow, right? So if the law is otherwise valid, whether an employment regulation or anything else, the First Amendment doesn't provide an exemption from that law. That's, that's my position. And I should say, it's not really my position. I think that's, that's the position consistent with the founders' philosophy of government. I mean, you know, I, mean I, I try to be upfront in the book. There's some things I like about this approach. There's other things I don't. You know, it's not, it, it's really, I, my job as a scholar is simply to, this is, my best attempt to understand this philosophy, um, for reasons I try to set forth, this philosophy clearly was behind the Constitution. If we apply this philosophy to the Constitution, these are the results that would follow. Those results may be good, they may be bad, we may like some of them, we may not like some of them. My job is not to produce good results, it's to produce what the history and philosophy dictate. And then we can evaluate them, you know, which I try to do in the last chapter. And I think one thing that you're careful to disclaim throughout the book is you're, you're pretty relentlessly focused on the animating founding interpretation and, and meaning and construction of the exercise clauses, which is to say um, you disclaim that you're not going to touch 14th Amendment incorporation. You're not going to reach that in this book. Um, I, I, I don't think you really do all that often. And that's, I think, helpful for the reader. Um, and one thing that that kind of comes out of that, related to what you were just talking about, is that you get actually really good purchase on kind of a separate tangent entirely on um, explaining how to do away with the Supreme Court's 
you know, status, uh, religious status, religion, religious exercise distinction. And it allows you just to focus on that animating original philosophy of the founding, which was that, in your view, the natural rights philosophy only prohibits the federal government from making laws that discriminate against religious exercise as such. I, I think that's pretty, a fair characterization. And it's yeah. crystal clear once you've drawn out the philosophy that that is kind of the conclusion that one would get to. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think so. I mean, that's, I think that's right. I, let me step back. Um, many originalists uh, and many conservatives don't like, they have the same response to the book. Um, they like part one and they like part two. They're like, yeah, the natural rights stuff is super helpful and the drafting of the religion clauses, that's really good, you know, very thorough. So they have no complaints about the history and the philosophy. They don't like the application and they're convinced I got something wrong because it can't be that the founders would lead to results that seem really bad for conservatives or for religious believers. That just, that's not how this is supposed to work. Um, <laughs> but you always hear originalists say, uh, look, if you're a true originalist, you'll reach results you don't like. Well, this is one of the times when you, if you follow the original meaning, you might reach results you, you don't like. The other thing to note is I think we all fall into the habit of thinking um, the purpose of the Constitution is to do justice. Therefore, if, um, if a law seems unjust to us, it must be unconstitutional. But that's not the way the First Amendment works. The free exercise clause is not, again, the purpose is not to remedy all unjust results as applied to religious believers. Right? It's just not what it does. And uh, laws might be unjust and constitutional. Uh, and the role of the Supreme Court is not to remedy all injustice. And I think there's, um, we just forget that, right? I mean, we, remember Madison said, you know, there was no Bill of Rights originally, right? We have to remember that. It, it's, I mean, the founders who clearly were concerned about religious freedom didn't think originally we needed a First Amendment because the real protection of religious liberty was going to be through the multiplicity of interests and the, st the structure of government. And if you read Madison, he'd say the equal application of the law to everyone. So let me just go down one path right here because this is very important. Madison thought that the best way to prevent uh, bad laws, oppressive laws, he says in Federalist 57, make sure that those who... Um, draft the laws and pass the laws, make sure you apply the law against them and their friends. The equal application of law, Madison says, the application of the same law to everyone is the best way to prevent bad laws. So you would never get a law that prohibited the Catholic Church from hiring only men because Catholics would never allow such a law to be passed. If you can't apply the law to everyone in justice, then you shouldn't pass the law, is what Madison would say. And his solution was not you exempt people who find the law burdensome. No, those people act in the legislative process to prevent such laws from being passed. That's how their freedom is protected. So re religious freedom is a much more, the, fact, the original constitutional design is much more political than we think. It's less, much less judicial and much more political. This reference to... Madison, in a sense, almost feels like a proto-equal protection clause, which was, of course, codified in the Constitution um, uh, not until the late 19th century. So where do you think this equal application principle is implicit in the constitutional text? Or do you think that it's just the natural rights framework that permeates throughout the founders would say the, the rule of law, that is the equal application of law, is an essential feature of law, right? That, that is, a law applies to everyone in its nature, right? Or at least everyone who falls into within the category of law, right? So um, as such exemptions or um, as such applications are, it's just contrary to the spirit of law. It's like an ex post facto law. Right? Uh, James Wilson says, look, we don't have to write down, or Ham I, can't, I think it's Hamilton or James Wilson, I can't remember. No, they did prohibit ex post facto laws, but ex post facto laws are not law. 
That's not part of the function of law. Of course, ex post facto laws are not constitutional, right? Of course, a law applies to everyone that the law applies to. That's just in the nature of law. You know, one thing that, that comes to mind as you were talking is the question of, of practicability. I think that's a piece of philosophy from Madison in 57 that sounds great and that you hear it and you, you want to instantly agree. The question that came to mind for me is, is one of the contemporary struggles in free exercise jurisprudence, which is what to do with bizarre minority, small, low numbers of adherent faiths. Uh, this is Thomas V. Review Board. This is Lakumi. Uh, there are a lot of a huge problem in the nature of jurisprudence is that if you're trying to decide what a religion looks like and you don't you have 200 years of case law and nobody has ever been an adherent let's take Lakumi of the church of Lakumi Babalu Aye in Hialeah and it's a small church to which there might only be this isn't necessarily Lakumi but 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 there might be only a, a few dozen adherents I think it's hard to put your faith in the political process that even if they did explicitly target Lakumi as the court found because of its the, the the nature of the actual regulation there, I don't know that the the city of Hialeah would would have rallied together to to defend the the rights of the Santeria worshippers. Yeah, do, yeah. Do, no, do you it, really it, think it, this it, this is workable? I guess no. It's a it's actually a great case um, to talk about this issue. So the case, I mean, for those who are unfamiliar with the case, and I'm going to simplify. This is. Santeria is a combination, I mean, I don't really know much about it, but it's a combination of um, Catholicism and Voodooism from the West Indies, I believe. And there's many practitioners or some practitioners in Florida. And in the early 1990s, they, um, the, the, they had leadership and they wanted to sort of come, come out from underground. And they went sort of public. And part of the practice of the religion is animal sacrifice. And then the public disposal of the carcasses, which you know, I, I don't understand the religion. This is just part of it. In the, uh, the city outside of uh, Miami, I believe, kind of went crazy when these, I mean, they said they're going to have a school and a museum. And, and basically, they didn't want Santeria in their community. Part of the reasons was for sanitation reasons. These animal carcasses were appearing on the streets. One can understand that. And so the city council drafted these ordinances basically trying to outlaw Santeria. And if you read the record of the case, it's really interesting. They, they wanted, clearly wanted to outlaw Santeria, but they couldn't figure out how to do so without outlawing butcher shops. And then wait, wait, they only wanted the law, to, the law to apply to Santeria, not to... They, they actually had trouble drafting a generally applicable law. And so the ordinance they finally drafted, I think, targeted religious sacrifice or ritualistic sacrifice. It clearly targeted a religious practice as such. And so actually the natural rights approach would simply say, no, that law is unconstitutional. You can't outlaw a religious practice. And no compelling state interest analysis, no least restrictive means, full stop. At least if we accept incorporation, you know, Congress and the states, in this case, a, a city government, you can't make a religious practice as a religious practice illegal. You can pass general sanitation laws, you can pass animal cruelty laws, but you have to apply them to everyone. And so it's actually a good case to like, this is, uh, I would reach the same result as the court did, striking down this ordinance, but I'd do it in a paragraph instead of whatever, 40 pages it took Justice Kennedy to do it. So to put a pin on John's question, um, maybe in a bit more uh, blunt terms, what is a religion for purposes of constitutional construction? Would it be religions that were understood as operative at the time of the founding, or could it apply to something that I created right now and sincerely believed and followed? And also, uh, just to uh, nuance this even more, does a religion necessarily have to invoke a higher power? Yeah, I mean, these are very, very difficult questions. Um, one's always tempted to, uh, you know, copy, uh, I think it's Potter Stewart on you know, pornography. You know, you know when you see it. And you could do a sort of sociological understanding. Um, and, you know, that might work, actually, in practice for purposes of law. So, uh, so a, couple, a couple of thoughts. One, I, I, clearly, I don't think a religion is only, uh, or the free exercise clause, establishment clause, only applies to those religions existing in 1787 or 1791. I want to date it. This is a 
dispute I have with uh, Judge Thapar, Abul Thapar on the Sixth, Sixth Circuit. We, we taught a class together. So, look, clearly the First Amendment applies to Mormonism, or to Mormons, you know, was no Mormon church in, in the time of the drafting of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. So, um, it's not the particular religions existing at the time, it's this conception of religion. Okay, So, I think that's easy to deal with. Um, my approach would scrutinize the law. Take a statute, an ordinance. Does that ordinance target religious exercises as such? I think you can actually do that inquiry without having an airtight definition of what is religion. Right? You just look at the law. Read the text of the statute. Does it talk about religion? Does it talk about religious exercises in the statute itself? So in practice, actually, I don't think you have to answer your question in an airtight way to actually apply the test. Ironically, it's the exemption approach that needs to have a very clear notion of what constitutes... Only religious believers and religious practices are eligible for an exemption. And then this brings a real problem. Because in practice, if people have asserted this is a religious belief or religiously motivated behavior... The court has just accepted it because the court doesn't want to judge. Are you? They'll judge if you're sincere or not, but is this an actual religious practice? But inevitably, you're going to see a proliferation of what, what is religiously motivated behavior. I mean, there's cases being filed right now. Procuring an abortion for me is a religious practice. Well, under the exemption approach, presumably you have to take that seriously. Anything could be a religious practice under the exemption approach. That's going to devour the approach because it means anyone doing anything has a constitutional right, if Alito's right, to be exempt from the law. Well, on its face, that's not... Either you're going to just say, no, really, we can't subject any behavior anyone wants to say is religion to the compelling state interest test and actually do the compelling state interest test, right? That's just not... We wouldn't have the system of the rule of law. The, the approach collapses under its own weight. I think that that answer dovetails well into the Establishment Clause issue, which has been one of the messiest uh, aspects of constitutional law uh, over the, the past century or so. I think you provide an extremely simple approach to the Establishment Clause that I think is uh, refreshing and much needed and to uh, oversimplify uh, perhaps it could it could just be said as um, the church can't act like a state the state can't act like a church except when it's serving the interests of the state and the public um, how accurate do you think that slogan is uh, and do you think it is a uh, is a more faithful slogan than uh, wall of separation, uh, yeah, which yeah. has, which has yeah. turned into the zeitgeist. Yeah. It's not, it's not a bad, you know, it's what you find when you do shows like this. Um, uh, it's, it's hard to actually summarize your arguments in very short, you know, a couple of sentences or so. So I appreciate the attempt. Um, the establishment clause, it's, it's interesting for years, uh, scholars, said, I mean, there's two basic camps. There's a strict separationist, sort of wall of separation, and then there were, at the time, there was a non-preferentialist. You could favor religion, you just had to do so in a non-preferential manner. And the, the terms of these debates were set by Supreme Court opinions. Wall of separation coming from Everson and Justice Black and, uh, and um, decisions by um, Brennan and Berger in the 60s, and then Justice Rehnquist introduced non-preferentialism. So you get this huge amount of scholarship, especially in the 80s, with Rehnquist going to originalism. But everyone is like, is the original meaning non-preferentialist, or is it separationist? Because the Supreme Court sets the rules of the game. And part of my advantage, candidly, of not being a lawyer, was to never think that I, the Supreme Court sets the rules of the game. I mean, what if the establishment is neither of those things? Um, so my advice to young scholars, you're talking, what, what, what my advice, don't, don't assume that existing scholarly paradigms are right. And in this case, I think they're just simply wrong. I mean, as an establishment is, doesn't require strict separationism, and it is not non-preferentialism. And 
my argument is if you want to understand what an establishment is, go to the states and look at states at the time of the founding era. Did any state have an establishment of religion? And it turned out only one state did. South Carolina Constitution of 1778. Now I'm going to pause here because some of your listeners will be saying, thinking, no, didn't six or seven states have an establishment of religion? I mean, that's what everyone says. Clarence Thomas says that. We say six or seven states had an establishment of religion because Leonard Levy, very influential scholar, said six or seven states had an establishment of religion. But Leonard Levy assumed an establishment of religion was when the state funded religion. But that's just that was just his understanding of establishment. That's not the founding era understanding of what an establishment is. So we got to go back, go back to the original documents. If you go back to the original documents, a state establishment of religion is when the state delegated its power to a church or when the state acted like a church, as you said. That is when the state set forth rules of, of religious doctrine or how you select your ministers, things like that. That's what they did in the uh, Constitution of South Carolina in 1778. And so it's relatively specific rules. And if you think about those rules, those rules intersect with natural rights philosophy. Um, The Establishment Clause is meant to prevent the delegation of state authority to churches, which is straight from social compact theory. So you can't give churches authority to tax people, to issue coercive taxes. That's exactly what they did in South Carolina. Um, a modern example is Grendel's Den, a case, I think, from the 80s, where the state of Massachusetts basically gave uh, churches authority over liquor licenses. They could veto liquor licenses. You can't delegate actual course of authority to churches. It's it's principle of non-delegation, or really sub-delegation. That's a principle of social contract theory. That's what the Establishment Clause is meant to prohibit. And also then the state can't act like a church, meaning the state can't make rules for how a church must select its ministers. And that's what they did in some founding era states. Your minister must be elected by the people. And you can't lay down, that is the state can't lay down specific uh, doctrines of religious faith. That's what they did in the state of South Carolina. To get incorporated by the state, you had to prescribe to these doctrines. And so, um, but this is just a matter of suspending the existing Supreme Court framework and say, let's go back to the original documents. And, and that's what I tried to do. Yeah, Rob, it sounds like you uh, you might have hit on the, the new $64,000 question for Republican nominees because Democratic nominees these days to the bench get asked, what is a woman? I think Republicans are going to get asked, what is a religion? Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, uh, so, so, Professor, well, when so... Uh, we, when we... Hear that question in a confirmation hearing. We'll know that this podcast has really made it big. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so as, as you were just talking, I, I pulled down a, a Leonard Levy book, Jefferson and Civil Liberties, The Darker Side. And, and now in your honor, I, I have to put uh, your book, Religious Liberty and the American Founding, right next to it on my bookshelf, which, which, which I think is, is, is a nice uh, scholarly accolade. So I, on that note, I guess, we usually end with advice uh, for those interested in, in making a career similar to the one of our guests. And so in this case, I think, you know, feel free to, to give whatever advice you'd like, but I think a lot of people are going to listen and be interested in legal academia, in, in writing and thinking about issues related to constitutional law and constitutional structure, you know, o- over your career and, and over your experiences, do you have any thoughts for, for how a law student or, or maybe somebody even interested in graduate school or, or, or the law more broadly who wants to, to you know, who, who, who admires your work as, as, as they ought to, who, who wants to do that in, you know, 10, 20, 30 years? Yeah, well, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I have lots of different thoughts that come to mind. So let me let me just sort of, you know, spew them out. Um, first is you can't be attached to your writing. Um, you have to be able, you have to have really thick skin. And you have, you have to put your ideas out there and let people criticize them. Um, when I grade my students' papers, you know, I, I take a red pen out and, you know, say, basically say, look, your opening paragraph totally not necessary. You just throw it out. And you hand the paper back to them and they're like, but I spent, you know, an hour writing that. And I'm like, oh, I, I don't care. It's no good. You don't need it. It doesn't help you. And they think it, it, it's like I'm chopping off their fingers. And you, you can't be so attached to your writing. You, you got you to gotta have some distance from it. And because writing is rewriting. This is the one thing. I mean, 
you know, I mean, I, every article I publish, there's probably 50 drafts of it. And you have to be relentless in finding people who criticize your work honestly. Getting honest criticism is hard to find. People who take the time to read your work seriously, give you feedback. And then you have to be dispassionate enough to say, yeah, that, that argument's not very good or that argument needs to be better. So that, that's the first piece of advice. You, you have to go in into it humble and disconnect your personal identity from, from you know, your, the, the words on the page. And say the second thing is um, just follow the evidence, actually. You know, especially in law. You know, this is a, a tension in law because you're, you're supposed to have a, you have a client. You're supposed to be advocating a position. That's what lawyers do. If I hire a lawyer, I want a lawyer to advocate for me. But it's not what you're supposed to be doing in scholarship, at least my understanding of scholarship. You're supposed to be trying to uncover the truth about something. And the best scholarship is, in my opinion, is, is dispassionate. You know, I, I have my positions. I mean, I, but my role as a scholar is to articulate, try to uncover the truth as I can understand it about my subject matter and then articulate that as clearly as I can not to defend a position. And it's very freeing in a way. Um, just in another book, I wrote a lot about Jefferson and I had really mixed feelings about Jefferson. And it was very just free, freeing to say, um, this is what Jefferson said. And then in the conclusion, I say, I think this is terrible, right? But I didn't, I, I didn't feel the need to shape Jefferson to fit into what I thought was defensible or, or not. And I, I, I think that those two pieces of advice, I'd say. Um, and then master something. Master something you're interested in and just you have to work relentlessly. Right. Um, one other thing related to that, you have to learn to think independently. So when, I, when I'm trying to figure out something, I don't start by reading lots of scholarly literature. I start by just thinking about it m myself. How would I approach it? What do, these what do I think these words mean? Um, what do I think this text means? And I spend a lot of time just thinking through my own interpretation. After I have an interpretation, then I go read what other people think. Because if you read the scholarly literature first, you'll be dominated by it. And then you'll try to situate yourself within the literature. But what if the literature is all wrong? Right? So, you know, I, that's what's worked for me. You know, I don't know that that works for everyone. That's that's awesome advice, and and I, I'll close out with it with a sua sponte appeal from your publisher. You mentioned somewhere in the middle of this conversation that the middle chapters are are boring to read. I, I couldn't disagree more. It's an awesome read. And it's an awesome book, and and thank you so much for taking the time to come out and, and share some thoughts with us about the project. Just terrific questions, and I really appreciate the time and the invitation. Thanks, Professor. Thanks. <laughs>